0: Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am your host, Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension based in Macomb, Illinois. And today we are talking all things insects and bugs, and I am joined by my co hosts. We have Katie Parker and Quincy. Hello, Katie. Hey Chris. And then we have Ken Johnson. He is in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hello, Ken. Hello. So guys, are you ready to talk about insects and bugs today? Of course. I'm always ready. I know Ken loves Ken loves this topic. So, um, you know, and this is really why we're having it because Ken begged me to talk about insects today. But we want to also welcome a special guest that we do have uh, another insect expert on the podcast. We have Kelly Alsip. Kelly, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Kelly, tell us a little bit about yourself. What you, you're with University of Illinois Extension. What do you do? for this glorious organization.
1: Like you and Ken, I am a horticulture educator. However, I am based out of Bloomington. Um, In the past, before I was an educator, I was in greenhouse management and production. So I worked at the research greenhouse at the University of Illinois, and then um, after that, I worked in the industry for a while and then I decided that I was done with watering plants and spraying chemicals all day and wanted to use my education a little bit more, so I decided to apply to be an educator.
0: Your background being in greenhouse management, tell me a little bit more about, you know, what did you learn in terms of, you know, keeping your greenhouse either clean, of insects do we need to just totally kill all the insects in the greenhouse what do we do to like uh, you know keep our plants alive
1: no I actually did learn a lot about managing insects in the greenhouse and uh, yes uh, one of the things that I learned was complete eradication is never really possible Uh, unless you're spraying some really harsh chemicals. Um, And I wanted to not spray these types of chemicals in my greenhouse because I wanted to release beneficial insects. So I started a campaign of releasing beneficial insects to uh, control some of my major pests, which were spider mites, thrips, aphids, whitefly, fungus gnats. And so then I used those, released those biologicals in my greenhouse and combined them with biological chemicals that would not kill them. So, uh, you know, again, I had to, you know, manage that, uh, you know, see if the biologicals were working, make sure the pest populations weren't out of control. But I had a really unique situation. I wasn't growing plants for production. In the research greenhouse, I was growing things like corn and soybeans and plants for identification. Um, so it, it gave me a unique opportunity to be able to have a little bit of plant damage um, from the pest, but also release the beneficial insects. And so um, in the beginning, of course, everybody in the greenhouse was like, this is never going to work. You're crazy. This We've never done it this way before. But it actually worked out really well. Um, managing those pests with those beneficial insects, I sprayed much less, m- less of time. So I was using more of those biological chemicals. I, so much less phytotoxicity, which means, you know, when you spray you know, a soybean plant every week, eventually that soybean plant is going to be like, ah, and look ugly and not set as many seed pods and the leaves are falling off. So it, and then, um, it also enabled me to allow the researchers to get into their rooms, um, more readily, because before, if I would have sprayed a harsh chemical, I had to keep them out of the room for 12 to 24 hours. But now releasing beneficial insects and spraying biological chemicals, it was more like I I only limited them from their projects for four hours. So it was so much fun. I mean, I definitely was very nerdy during that time, and it created a love of insects for me really understanding them and so when i transitioned to this job i mean i'm not managing a greenhouse anymore but i had to then decide how i was going to teach people about beneficial insects in their garden and pollinators and so i'm not really an entomologist expert i'm just an entomology enthusiast which is why um ken and i are like bffs in the uh team because we both are you know when it comes to projects on pollinators and beneficial insects we both really enjoy that.
0: I mean I would say with your powers combined you are like captain insect though you know so you guys uh, I turn to Kelly and Ken with a lot of my insect questions that come into the extension office.
1: I turn to Ken when I can't answer the questions
0: (laughs) Well sometimes I have answers (laughs) Ken always has great answers. He just says it's a good bug, just let it live, even yes. if it's going to, like, bite you. you I mean, some.
1: sometimes that's the answer. I think a lot of people look at a bug and they think, or an insect, and they think, bad, got to kill it, got to kill it. And I think we really need to step back and think, you know, we may have a bad pest population, but we probably have beneficial insects already working in the garden for us. And if we could just learn to identify them, then maybe we wouldn't have to spray chemicals at all. And those beneficial insects would keep the bad insects in check. I get there are certain pest populations that's not going to work that way. You know, for instance, maybe squash bugs or Japanese beetles. But if you have aphids in the garden, you don't have to worry about spraying them. Those beneficial insects will come and eat those babies up. They're big, dumb, don't move very fast, and full of sugar, so insects love them.
0: I always thought of aphids as like the chickens of the insect world. Everything wants to eat an aphid.
1: I would agree. I don't think I've ever walked up to an aphid population in a garden and not seen some sort of beneficial insect eating them.
0: So that kind of ties into the questions that we We solicited online, we went to Facebook, Instagram, to our social medias to ask folks that uh, do follow our pages, uh, friends of ours, to send in their insect questions. And you know what, Kelly, a lot of the questions are, hey, what's this bug? How do I kill it? It's like, you don't even know what it is, so let's identify it first. So um, let's dive into some of our questions, but we do have a follow-up from last week. Uh, last week we were talking about vegetable gardening so we did have one question that came in after we did the podcast and this comes from Sandy in Knox County. She is asking about Brussels sprouts. She says that they never get very big in her garden. What can she do to get bigger Brussels sprouts? Uh, Katie, what do you think about this one?
2: Yeah, so um, I think it's important to know Brussels sprouts so they do favor cooler temperatures. Um, so a lot of times here in the midwest we do get some warm temperatures during the summer Um, so something if that's causing you to have um, the smaller brussels sprouts a possibility is planting later for fall production Um, planting during a time when it's going to experience less than 70 degrees fahrenheit for daytime temperatures Uh, another consideration Is brussels sprouts like water so uh, something else you could do is monitor your plants uh, and make sure that they don't experience drought Uh, typically you can water them anywhere from one to two inches uh, per week and then something if you're not currently doing it um, this might benefit you the most so about three weeks before harvest you can top the plant and what that is is you, you cut up cut off the upper one to two inches of the plant Um, and this is the growing point of the plant. So by removing the growing point you're allowing the plant to now allocate resources to the actual growing brussels sprouts and that should allow for them to get bigger. Uh, So if I were to start anywhere I would probably start with the topping the plant if that's not something you're currently doing. Uh, And see if that works. And then if that doesn't work, uh, maybe try planting later in irrigating or watering more often. Katie, how much of the plant do you top? You can remove anywhere from like the upper one to two inches. Um, You can look at your plant and see kind of where your your Brussels sprouts should be forming. And so, just go a little above that last Brussels sprout and cut the plane off there. And you can just use uh, your pruning shears. Uh, if you have some heavy duty scissors, that would work as well.
0: All right, well, thank you, Katie. That was, that was great information. I love Brussels sprouts. And uh, I tried growing them last year, and it's exactly what you said happened. It was summer, it got hot, and they They did not develop very well and they did not taste very good, the ones that we were able to pick. So, we will be trying the fall crop this year.
2: Yeah. And I um, typically like when Brussels sprouts experience a frost, that frost helps with flavor. So, uh, planting later could benefit you in that aspect as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Katie. Um, Our next question actually comes from Ogle County. And I am really glad we have Kelly on the podcast today because. Even if you weren't here, I was going to reach out to you to help me answer this question. Uh, this is a high school greenhouse. They are seeing aphids, whiteflies, and gnats. How do they save their plants?
1: Yes, thank you for this awesome question for me. <laughs> I couldn't have picked out a better question. So I did. Li- I did write down a few things that I think that they should do. Um, first of all, I would stop fertilizing. Because when you fertilize, you get um, that luscious new growth that aphids absolutely love. And um, so I would back off of the fertilizer for a little bit until you get the aphids knocked down. Another thing is fungus gnats are an indication of overwatering. So if you could back off of your watering a little bit. Now, I, I don't want you to let your plants um, experience drought or wilt um, but um, let them dry down just a little bit more than you're doing now um, and really check them you know sometimes when i'm growing in a in a house i'll grow in flats and they'll maybe the outer pots maybe need a shot of water but the inner inner pots don't need water so um really work on um watering only when dry um, Another thing is yellow sticky cards are your friends. I would almost just completely put up, order a pack of yellow sticky cards and just pepper the greenhouse with them because what they'll do is they'll start trapping some of those fungus gnat adults and some of those white fly adults. The next step would be to use Bavaria Bessiana. It's a biological chemical and it could, um, it's not gonna work as well as some of the more, the harsher chemicals, but it could provide some quick knockdown. Um, Again, it might take a a few days to start working, but it can provide a, a quick knockdown. But if you're willing to order beneficial insects, you should place your order now um they can really do a great job of taking care of some of these pests and then if you after you release these beneficial insects if you find you still have a pest population that might be damaging to the plant you can then do another spray of Bavaria bassiana and not kill them all off Um, Aphid, paras- aphid parasitoids, they're a parasitic wasp that lay their eggs in um, the bodies of aphids. And then the aphid gets all papery. We call these an aphid mummy. Um, you might already have that happening if your if you're vents and your... Um, your ridges, you open your ridge in the the hottest part of the days, you might already have those aphid parasitoids in the greenhouse. So look at that aphid population. If they're brown and papery, you already have aphid parasitoids, but you can order those off the internet. They're very, very uh, reasonable in price and easy to release. Um, Another thing that you can do is we also have parasitoids for white fly. We have uh, two, they're called Incarcia and Eretmosaurus. And the reason you want the combination is because we don't always know what kind of white fly we have, if we have greenhouse whitefly or sweet potato whitefly, and then if we release those, we don't care because one, the Incarcia likes the greenhouse white fly, the Eretmosaurus likes the sweet potato white fly, and what these parasitic wasps do is they lay their eggs in the larva of white fly. And if you look underneath the leaf, you'll see these flat white, they don't even look like insects. And those are the larva and they're feeding off of your plants. And um, depending on what color that larva turns when it's parasitized, it could tell you which uh, which fly, white fly, you have, and which one's working the best? Um, and then for the fungus gnats in the greenhouse, I used to use um, nematodes. So I would drench my soil with the nematodes, and though the nematodes would attack the fungus gnat larvae, fungus gnats usually aren't a huge problem. Yes, they're a nuisance, but the fungus gnat larvae can eat roots, and not necessarily important on a big, lush, hanging basket that already has a really good root system, but very important on young plants that are starting their roots. So, um, you know, the, the, the tip, another tip is when you're releasing parasitoids in a greenhouse, these little parasitic wasps, is you have what they need to lay their eggs, but you need to think about feeding those parasitic wasps, too. And they need flowering plants. So in our greenhouse, if we had, um, you know, poinsettias that had a whitefly problem, we would add in uh, pots of sweet alyssum. That way we were feeding the adults. We have the larva of the whitefly for them to lay their eggs in. And um, that helped us keep the population going, because in a greenhouse situation, you kind of get sad when all the aphids are gone, because when all the aphids are gone, so are all your aphid parasitoids. Um, So the aphid, the parasitoids usually come on a little card of already um, parasitized larva, and you just hang them on your plants. The, um, the nematode for the fungus gnats, you do a drench. Um, and a- as soon as those plants dry up, those nematodes are e- either inside the fungus gnat larva or they're dead. But I used to use the um, uh, nematode drench for poinsettias all the time, it really helped me out. Um, managing them because when you have a plant that doesn't necessarily have a fully formed root system, then the plants tend to stay wetter, right? So um, that really helped me out a lot in the greenhouse.
3: And one thing I would add, and Kelly kind of hinted at, is if you have a real high population, um, kind of your beneficial insects aren't going to get those populations down fast of those pests. Um, So you may have to knock those pest populations down and then go in um, and release those beneficials. So they're a little better at kind of um, kind of those low to maybe medium sized pest outbreaks. If you have real high, it's gonna take them too long to be able to kind of catch up and you're gonna start seeing a lot of damage to your plants and stuff.
1: Yeah, good point, Ken. Um, in the greenhouse, um, I did that all the time. If I was, I would um, order my, my uh, beneficial insects, But if I had too high of a population, I'd go in there and I'd knock it down with, you know, for my spider mites, I'd knock them down with uh, an insecticidal soap first or, you know, for my Incarcia or my, um, excuse me, for my white flyer or my aphids, I'd try to do the Bavaria first before actually releasing the beneficials. Um, Yeah, he's right. Uh, If I had too high of a population, they couldn't keep up. Uh, now, insecticidal soap can't be sprayed on a monocot like corn or grass it, it'll burn them but uh, insecticidal soap was my uh, go-to to knock down spider mites
0: wow you just saved me right in a very long email now i'm just going to type uh, an email out to this high school teacher and say listen to the podcast at the uh, and kelly will tell you everything you need to know so fantastic yeah. answer
1: and all you have to do do is Google biological control and all of these biological control companies will come up. It's really not that expensive. I mean, if you think about buying a chemical that and then having to put on all the gear and having to spray it, it actually is probably cheaper in the long run to do biological chemicals, biological insects, beneficial insects. And then, you know, always plan, you know. You know, um, this year you had these pests. Well, next year you're probably going to have these pests again. And um, have those beneficial insects ready to come. Uh, You know, if I planted a room full of soybeans, I would already be ordering the beneficial insects before I ever saw the spider mites. Because I know I'm getting spider mites. Our
0: next question comes from Amy. She's in McDonough County, and she wants to know, how does she get rid of house centipedes, and do they bite?
1: Um, Yeah, well, centipedes are venomous. Um, They can bite, but they rarely do. Even if they did, it probably wouldn't cause too much of a problem for you. you know how to get rid of them is kind of a loaded question because ken probably can agree with me we always tell everybody you know exclusion is the best way so you have to go through and make sure to cock places around your house put a door sweep on so but you know a centipede is so flat i mean it doesn't need very much uh space to get into your house um, probably the reason it's coming into your house is because your house has damp locations. Um, they like that kind of environment. Uh, you could alter the environment a little bit. Um, they tend to like your basement, your bathroom, or your kitchen. And they are probably eating other insects in your house. So personally, I would welcome, welcome them in my home. Um let them go ahead and eat all that other stuff. Um, right now, my personally, my, uh, my bathroom and my kitchen is being taken over by ants. So maybe I need to order some centipedes offline and <laughs> release them. Also, do sticky traps in the basement or around the bathroom that might help control them.
3: Yeah, I always like to tell people they're getting free pest control out of them. Mm-hmm. Probably not the answer they want to hear, but, you know, yeah, altering that environment and and finding out what they're eating and kind of eliminating their food source um, can help make them go away too.
1: I actually saw a Phil Nixon article on this, and he said we had a – it was a, a few years back, when you have a big population of um, – you know, certain insects coming into the home that might cause a population of the centipedes in the house. And he was talking about uh, earwigs and, uh, you know, um, what are those crickets that everybody sends pictures of? Oh,
3: the camel crickets.
1: Yes. But if you don't want crickets or earwigs in your house, centipedes will take control, take care of them.
0: We get those in our house quite often and I will just grab them in my hand and I'll just toss them outside. I don't kill them and I've never been bitten by them, so, so far so good at least.
1: Yeah, I think that's the best way to get rid of them, not not kill them, but just, you know, you can take a piece of Kleenex and just grab them and toss them outside.
0: All right, and our next question comes from Adams County and this is from Carol. Uh, This is kind of in the same vein here. She has spiders, and she doesn't mind spiders that are catching insects outside of the house, or even small spiders, I think, inside the house, but it's the ones that they mistake for mice that are running around inside. She's saying they have to go, I'm betting these are like wolf spiders or something like that. So she wants to know, how does she get rid of these giant spiders?
1: I would catch it and keep it as a pet. Um it's, you know, with the spiders, it's the same way. I would catch them with a Kleenex and throw them outside. The wolf spiders don't really want to come into your house. They just happen to come in. Um, House spiders, if you were to catch them and throw them outside, they probably wouldn't survive, but the wolf spider would be fine. He's just, he's just lost. Um, If uh, you want to use sticky traps, too. That can be another way to eliminate some of the spiders in areas where you might have seen them. But uh, I would prefer that you just catch them and throw them outside. I know that's probably not what she wants to hear because most people are scared. But a wolf spider is rather, um, it's probably, you know, not going to hurt you. Um can
3: see I would agree and and kind of the same thing with the house centipedes caulking and, and sealing any cracks crevices that they would be able to get into a lot of times they're coming in um, in the fall when it's starting to cool off um, they end up inside so yeah, and I mean if you really wanted to if they're really bothering you you could put down a kind of a perimeter spray um, or something like that um, to keep them out but I Personally, I would not do that, but then again, spiders don't bother me. So,
1: yeah, by putting down that perimeter spray, you may be taking the chance of killing other beneficial insects. That's why entomologists—well, I'm not an entomologist; I'm an enthusiast, but Kent's an entomologist? That's why we don't like people just wanting to spray because um, you know when you spray, a, you know certain types of chemicals, of course. You're killing everything. And that's not really what we want to do in um, this new, you know, environmental gardening, environmental awareness um, to kill everything. We need spiders. Spiders are actually really good predators. Um, they're wonderful to have in the garden. They're going to eat some of those bad insects that you have. So um, maybe pick it up and put it in your garden. Kelly and Ken, have you ever seen those ultrasonic
2: pest repellers that you can plug in to your outlets in your house?
3: Yes. And from everything I've read, they don't really work.
1: I personally have not read any research on them, but it sounds like a gimmick. Yeah. Just like Japanese beetle traps. I've seen them,
2: but um, I didn't know if they worked or not.
0: Wait, do hedge apples in the basement work for spiders? Uh, nope, that doesn't work either.
1: It's it's like it's like when when horticulturists say plant mint um, in pots to repel mosquitoes. I mean, you have to be constantly crushing those mint leaves, and even maybe even rubbing them on your skin to actually repel the mosquitoes. You can't just have a pot of mint on your porch and think you're gonna repel mosquitoes. So I would think the same kind of thing would translate to the um, hedge apples where you'd have to open them up or rub them everywhere. What do you think, Ken?
3: Yeah, I've read I've read some stuff on it. I can't remember exactly. I think there may be some chemicals in there that may repel stuff, but again, you've gotta have it in large enough concentrations. Um, in order for that to work so there's a lot like a lot of those things there's kind of a little ounce of truth to it but you kind of leave the scale out of it and kind of everything gets confused and stuff
0: i think it was an iowa state study that debunked the the hedge apple thing and and they did say like what you described can yes there are some repellent properties that can be found but it's not not going to work on the scale of your basement or you know of a typical house that you might have okay and then our last question for this podcast it comes also from adams county this is robin and we're already getting these questions this is unbelievable it's it's april and it's snowing right now but we are already getting this one how do you get rid of japanese beetles all right um i i'm just gonna sit back and just listen Um, So I mean, there's a variety of different ways you
3: can do it. Um, So typically Japanese beetles are starting to come out end of June, early July um, for this part of Illinois. So kind of that time of year, you want to start going out and looking for the Japanese beetles. you probably, if you've got roses, lindens, um, plants that they really like, start looking on those first. Um, Once you start seeing them show up, um, start handpicking them off the plants um, if you want to spray for them, you can do that. Um, get them off of those plants. Um, they have found that the earlier you a handle on them, to reduce those populations, um, the less damage you have. In the long run, because as those beetles are feeding, um, those plants will release uh, chemicals um, from being damaged that will draw in more beetles. Um, there's also some pheromones the beetles will give off to draw in more beetles. So the more plant damage you have draws in more beetles, which causes more damage, which causes more beetles or just kind of snowballs So a lot of times, if you can do a good job of keeping those populations down, um, the first several weeks they're out, um, kind of long-term over the summer, um, you tend to have less damage out there. Um, And Kelly mentioned earlier, you know, those Japanese beetle traps, um, don't use those. Those attract far more beetles um, than they're ever gonna catch. Um, I've come across some pictures from Iowa State, Um, some researchers over there took those traps, replaced those with a 13 gallon trash bag, Um, and they were able to fill those bags overnight. So those things are drawing in thousands of beetles. Um, As they're flying into those traps, they may land on a plant that they like and they're not necessarily gonna leave. So the plants in that flightway tend to get more beetles on them. So it's just, traps are not a good idea. If you are gonna use them, you could use them to monitor early in the year. As soon as they start showing up, um, get rid of those traps so you don't draw more stuff in. Another thing people try to do is is trying to control those grubs, those larvae in the soil. Um, You you can get rid of all of them in your yard, but the adults can fly, so they're still gonna fly in to your yard, so controlling the grubs in your yard isn't gonna do anything um, to manage the adults. Um, If you do have issues in your yard, um, one thing you can do is kind of hold off on irrigating your your lawn. Uh, Those beetles look for um, kind of nice, lush green growth to lay their eggs. Um, and if you're supplementing um, water in your yard by irrigating, you're making your landscape that much more attractive to them, and kind of creating um, your own problem. I don't know, if, anything you want to add to that, Kelly?
1: I'm a huge advocate of not planting plants that are attracted to beetles. If they're very attract, I know that Japanese beetles have a wide range and. Um, you know, for instance, I had a crab apple um, that was just totally covered in Japanese beetles, and then I have ostrich fern, so I just took those plants out, but, you know, I'm never going to stop growing basil, which is one of the plants that uh, Japanese beetle likes, so I'm just going to cover my basil this year when um, the Japanese beetles start to come out with a row cover. And, and I've done that with, you know, other pest um, outbreaks, for instance, um, you know, I cover my eggplant with a row cover to prevent the flea beetles from getting them in the early parts of the season. So um, I know Ken loves exclusion too, but sometimes, you know, exclusion is the answer. Um, So I'm covering my basil this year. As soon as I see a Japanese beetle, I'm covering it.
3: So, and on the uh, the unattractive plants
1: kind of theme there,
3: um, there is a, a paper out there, um, it's titled Relative Susceptibility of Woody Landscape Plants to Japanese Beetles, um, that's by David Held. Um, and that actually goes through um, a bunch of different um, woody plants out there and, and rates them as to how attractive they are to Japanese beetles. So if you're looking at it, putting in some plants into your landscape, um, and you, you can s- consistently have problems with Japanese beetles, Um, That may be something to look at and try to find some plants um, that are a little less attractive to them. It even gets into stuff um, like crab apples. You know, typically there's one of those plants we get a lot of Japanese beetles on, but there are some um, different cultivars um, that are out there that are less attractive uh, to Japanese beetles than others.
1: I know, I tell master gardeners all the time to pull out their roses, and they're like, what? No way! And I'm like, well, then you're going to have to have a Japanese beetle management plan. And having a plan, you, thats the, that I think is key too. Um, always scouting, have a plan on what you're going to do once you see them.
3: Yep. And a lot of people don't like touching insects, but handpicking if you don't have um, a lot of plants that they like or you don't have a lot of beetles um, is a real easy way uh, to manage them. Go out with your morning coffee pick some beetles, shake the plants into a, a bucket of water, put a couple drops of soap in there. Um, that soap's not gonna kill them, but it's gonna break that surface tension so the beetles sink. Um, and, you know, kind of do that Do that early in the morning um, when they're still kind of sluggish. If you wait later in the day, when you they're disturbed, they'll fly away. Um, but in the, in the early morning when they're still sluggish, they'll just drop to the ground. Um, it's a pretty easy way uh, to get a handle on them. If you don't wanna do it and you've got kids or grandkids, um, send them out to do it. Most kids like playing with bugs. At least mine do.
1: Mine would probably try to eat them.
0: Mine have eaten one.
3: How'd they taste?
0: That good? He spit it out. He's also <laughs> eaten lady beetles. Um, let's see, uh, eats dog food sometimes. You know, it, and it, it, you know, we let him forage, so it's okay.
1: I think my kid ate grass before I actually fed him real food, so. <laughs>
0: grass and rocks
1: it's good for you yet another reason not to spray chemicals at least they're not eating a chemical
0: you know i have where i'm located here in central illinois we're lots of corn and beans we have homeowners who basically their entire landscape is just a flood of japanese beetles and so we did do a little uh experiment not officially this is just anecdotal but we used a kaolin micronized clay spray on some crab apples and then we left some untreated and we did notice this clay spray basically coats the leaves in like a white film and it's not the best looking thing but it's either that or their trees would be devoured we did notice a reduction in feeding so one of it just acts as like a physical barrier to feeding and it doesn't actually kill the beetles but we did notice that so again just anecdotal nothing official But if you do want to reduce spraying, you know, highly potent or toxic pesticides to protect your plants, this could be another option out there. And it is labeled for that use.
3: And also with pesticides, when you're using those,
0: um, especially the systemic ones, making
3: sure you're not applying those... Um, to plants that are gonna be blooming. Um, I know a lot of the labels now say, especially for lindens, that um, you cannot apply this, this product to lindens because when we're typically applying those for Japanese beetles, that's when those trees are blooming. Um, and there's that potential for that um, insecticide to get into that nectar and pollen on those plants.
1: Chris, um, the kale and clay, we actually are, we've used it in the past on the raspberries and blackberries at the food forest. And in our plan this year, we're going to use that again um, at the food forest to protect those raspberries and blackberries, because that is a favorite plant of Japanese beetles.
0: Oh, they love those brambles. Yes, they do.
1: And to uh, piggyback onto what Ken said, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes I have people ask me, they're like, oh, I did a systemic drench on my hibiscus to prevent the Japanese beetles coming. And I'm like, well, you know, you're probably going to end up killing some bees when you do that. And they're like, what? So I think they don't always understand that if you do a systemic drench for Japanese beetles, you are killing other insects especially those beloved bees and pollinators that um, we we actually want.
0: I think we have talked a lot about insects and creating not necessarily some type of artificial environment to help control them, but creating these dynamic systems for nurturing both the good bugs and sort of the benign bugs that also help us out with pollination and control of, of pests and that way they can help to reduce the need for spraying an insecticide and also hopefully improve the health of our lawns, yards, gardens, and just make Living in Illinois, a little bit more of an interesting place because we can go out and we can observe all these different things that are happening. So, creating these biologically diverse, dynamic systems. Thank you very much, uh, Kelly, for being on the podcast today. We really do appreciate your time, especially here as we sort of hunker down in our own
1: homes. Thank you. I, I don't. I had I had no meetings.
0: <laughs> the schedule is wide open. That's that's kind of how it feels like. Uh, if people wanted to like follow you on social media or online like, get in touch with you what what are the best ways what are your outlets that you use in your your area
1: yeah I have a I have a, a blog um, called flowers fruits and frass and frass is insect poop um, uh, great alliteration there Um but, uh, you know, I, I say insect poop because sometimes, and Ken can uh, uh, attest to this, I can actually identify an insect by the poop it leaves behind. Um, so, I know, wonderful. <laughs> um, so, flowers, fruits, and frass. Then I have a Facebook page called Mid-Illinois Master Gardener. So, all you have to type, do is type in that. Um, So uh, I'm actually starting a backyard garden challenge um, on Wednesdays, kicking off with Earth Day, where we're going to release infographics and um, challenges for you to do in your backyard while we're all at home. So if you want to like me on Facebook, again, that's Mid-Illinois Master Gardener, and I'll be there.
0: Thanks, Kelly. We will link to your blog and to your Facebook page on the show notes below. I'll also include my email, Ken and Katie's email below. Uh, And, you know, just from everybody here, I think we just scratched the surface on insects. So we're definitely going to be having Kelly back to talk more about this in detail, especially as our season gets into full swing. And so thank you, Ken and Katie, also for being on today. do appreciate you being here. Thanks for having us.
2: Yes, thank you.
0: And for all of us here at the Good Growing Team, keep on growing and thanks for listening.